Trevor and we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 189. This time around, you are joined by filmmaker Paul W.S. Anderson in celebration of his new film, Monster Hunter, starring Mila Jovovich. A time of release in theaters December 18th. It is such a fun, action-packed creature flick. You'll hear about the unique practical locations, how Paul crafted an immersive horror adventure. We love this one. You'll also go back to his 1997 classic, Event Horizon, to uncover its mysteries. Take a trip to Marilyn Manson's Gothic Castle recording studio and so much more. Episode 189 starts now. Did you see that thing? Come on! Come back! This is officially above my pay grade. I don't care what those creatures are. We destroy them and close the gateway. I'm getting us all home. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is an inspiring, energetic, and fearless filmmaker with the impressive ability to not only crawl inside your head, but take you on exhilarating journeys through elevated storytelling, inventive presentation, and truly immersive mechanics that put you in the driver's seat. His debut was a highly impressive shopping in 1994, giving Jude Law his first major role, a film that is unrelenting in its energy and social commentary by way of amorality. In 1995, he gave us his vision of Mortal Kombat that served as a blueprint for Hollywood's foray into the world of films based on the stories previously locked away in our video game consoles. 1997, the stunning gothic sci-fi horror film and one of our personal faves, the award-winning Event Horizon. 2002 saw his creation of the most successful film franchise based on a video game in the world, Resident Evil, writing all six, directing four of them, ending with the final chapter in January 2017. There was a crossover Alien vs. Predator, the highest grossing film in either of the franchises. Following that, the award-winning Death Race, 2011's Three Musketeers, a nine-time award-winning Pompeii in 2014, and more. His latest is a massive and exhilarating creature feature. Packed with strength, action, dazzling eye candy, and a big, pure, pumping heart at the center of it. It's called Monster Hunter. It stars Mila Jovovich, and it's out December 18th. We are honored to welcome its creator, Paul W.S. Anderson. Yeah! Wow, what an intro. Well, much deserved, my friend. You're a legend. <laughs> and to be a disappointment after all of that. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much again for taking the time to join us today. And congrats on the film. It's absolutely spectacular. Thank you. So through your career, you've displayed a deep mastery of how to not only scare an audience, but to trigger that instinctual fight or flight mechanism and to play in that space taking the audience on a real ride. And we wanted to get into the building blocks of how you got there creatively a little bit by asking you about your first impactful experiences with the horror genre. 
Oh my God, impactful experiences with the horror genre. That would have to be twofold. One was in my home where I think my mom and dad had gone out and uh, I was watching TV. I'd been told to go to bed and I didn't. And uh, my comeuppance was I saw Halloween. Oh my God, it just terrified me. Because of course I'm in a suburban home and I'm watching a horror that's taking place in a suburban home. And, uh, you know, it taught me a lot about uh, the importance of relatability in terms of scaring people. And then the second would be, you know, not such a relatable place. But uh, I saw when I was at school, they screened at the end of one term Alien, the original Alien with Sigourney Weaver. And, uh, and, and yeah, again, I was super terrified, um, super super kind of lured into it because it's a beautiful looking movie and Sigourney Weaver was just a fantastic lead, but God, it was terrifying. And, and I think a tribute to that movie that it's still terrifying as well today. What are some of those moments in film that you find yourself referencing or thinking about time and time again, that really awakened something in you, like a cinematic lesson or two that has gone on to inform your approach? as a storyteller? Well, I think, I think Alien obviously is, um, has been a big influence on me just because it was, I, I guess, one of the, the earlier horror films I saw. It was a mixture of incredible style. Also, it used a lot of practical effects, which I think is really to its benefit. I think the fact that Ridley Scott had a, a guy in a rubber suit that didn't look that good, so he had to hide the rubber suit. He had to hide the guy. He had to be very circumspect in his filmmaking. Means that uh, because he showed so little, he left a lot to your imagination. And uh, of course, you know that again, it's a truism. But you know, people, you know what scares you the most. And if the filmmaker doesn't show you too much, you end up filling in the blanks yourself. And uh, that's what Ridley did on Alien. And uh, that was a very, very important lesson for me. Sometimes, you know, you've got to allow the audience to kind of work for it and be restrained as a filmmaker, not rub the audience's nose in the gore and the nastiness, but let them imagine things. And I think that that worked to Alien's uh, advantage. And, you know, when I went on and did a movie like Event Horizon, I can't tell you how many times people have come up to me and told me the disgusting and horrible and terrifying things they've seen in Event Horizon. And I never shot those things. You know, these are kind of people's imaginations, what they thought they saw, because the sequences are so fast cut sometimes, these visions of hell. And um, so actually being circumspect in the filmmaking and showing less can just, less is more. Sometimes less is more. When it comes to action, though, rather than horror, I'm a big believer in more is more. Just speaking of that and speaking of um, dealing with that and the way that you deliver the action to a viewer in a film. The very unique way you have found your own personal voice to parlay that heightened speed and the shots, that real sense of movement that you create with the camera of putting us in the center of that action where so much is going on, but none of it goes by us. It's all very impactful. No punch is left without a payoff. Talk about constructing that. I was very fortunate when I first worked in Hollywood that um, I worked with uh, an actor called Robin Shue who was the lead in Mortal Kombat. And uh, Robin played Liu Kang. He'd worked in Hong Kong to start with as a stuntman before becoming an actor. And uh, he taught me a lot about action choreography. Uh, and also because he was a skilled martial artist, he could do the fight scenes. And uh, that gave me great freedom as a filmmaker to actually show the reality of the fight. 
And I really fell in love with being able to show the geography of a fight and the reality of a fight without having to cut around it. And I've always kind of sought out actors who can really deliver on the action. I've been very fortunate that I've, I've worked with people like Robin, with Mila, obviously, in the Resident Evil movies and Monster Hunter, you know, I've, I've, with Jason Statham and Death Race. I've worked with a lot of actors who are confident in delivering action for you. And the advantage that gives you, as I said, is you don't have to hide the stunt doubles. You can really show the actors getting in there and doing their stuff. And the fact that you don't have to hide it allows you to maybe linger on the cuts a little longer and show the audience the geography. You don't have to just mess it all up with a bunch of cuts and a bunch of kind of random sounds to make it seem exciting. Before we get into more Monster Hunter stuff, I wanted to rewind just a bit and go back to Event Horizon a little bit as that it really is a great example of the pillars of your, your unique storytelling approach. There's this pioneering fearlessness and a tendency to push. And now we have reports of an Event Horizon TV series now being talked about from Amazon and Paramount. What did that experience teach you about your own voice? Event Horizon was a, was a really unique experience because I got to create a haunted house, essentially. You know, that, that movie, we only shot outdoors for like two hours. And that was for a flashback for Kathleen Quinlan's uh, birthday party that she threw for her young son. And we shot it in, uh, we shot the movie in Pinewood Studios and we shot that in the Pinewood Gardens. And uh, everything else was on a soundstage and everything else had to be created because we we're on this labyrinthine spaceship. And it was really the first time I'd had the budget to kind of build something that elaborate and create something that had a kind of uh, a unity to it. And I was looking for a very, I think if you're, if you're doing a spaceship or you're doing a science fiction movie, you, you need to have a particular vision. And, and I think, for example, Ridley was very, very smart and very, very lucky to have Giga's artwork because that, that was a man's lifetime. You know, Giga's artwork was kind of distilled into Ridley's movie, the, the look of the alien spaceship, the look of the alien itself. You know, Ridley, he didn't come up with that stuff himself. He kind of lent on an entire body of work. And uh, when we were doing Event Horizon, I, I felt like we needed our equivalent of that. But um, unfortunately, Giga had already been used. So, you know, our, our go-to was we wanted to create a Gothic horror. So I went to the greatest Gothic building that I knew, which was, which was Notre Dame in Paris. And, and we basically copied Notre Dame. We built Notre Dame in a computer. And then we took elements of it and we built a spaceship with elements of Notre Dame Cathedral so that it became unrecognizable, but it was actually built from Gothic elements so that the whole thing had an underlying Gothic feel to it, even if you couldn't like put your finger on, oh, that's a, that's a copy of a Gothic building. And that extended to all of the corridors we built, all the rooms we built. They were all done with Gothic design elements. So it was a very specific approach, but I think it gave that movie a very specific feel yeah definitely added to the gravity of it even like the coffin shaped doorways and things like that that are very subconscious but they creep inside and what has become a thing of legends that everybody talks about this is this single rumored vhs tape existing of an alternate cut and the original 30 minute part that was cut out and dumped in a transylvanian salt mine and all these it's the stuff of lore what is the story behind that and what exactly is on it I think, you know, bits and pieces of, of the lost cut of Event Horizon turn up, like on different VHS tapes, there'll be little bits of scenes that are slightly different from earlier cuts. 
But I, I think the truth is that, you know, when we delivered the first cut to Paramount, they were just horrified by the movie. Um, it was much darker and scarier than they ever thought it was going to be. An executive actually said to me, but we're the studio that makes Star Trek. As though somehow I was like besmirching Star Trek as well, you know. It wasn't bad enough that I'd made this horrible movie, but also I was like making Star Trek look bad as well. So, we, you know, the movie ended up being trimmed a lot. And um, unfortunately, it was before DVD really popularized, you know, deleted scenes and things like that. So there was no incentive for studios to keep all of that extra material. I feel like maybe bits and pieces might still be discovered, but I don't think there'll ever be a return to like the original version, uh, unless that's something that we constructed now, you know, which I, I always thought would be an impossibility, but who knows in the world of the Snyder cut of justice league, maybe, maybe there's the Anderson cut of event horizon. All I need is a few million dollars and a few buckets of blood. And <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. The Resident Evil films had a real evolution, starting with leaning hard into the horror aspect on the earlier films and then later going heavy onto the action and then going back to horror in its final entry. Can you talk a bit about the design of that trajectory? I was, as you know, I, I was very influenced by Alien and, and not just Alien, but Aliens. I thought James Cameron's follow up to Ridley Scott's movie was incredibly intelligent um, in that I think Cameron looked at Alien and went, well, I can't do better than that. That was insanely good. You know, and, I, and I'll for, uh, how can I do better? Or, all I can do is do the same and then it won't be as good because it's not as original. So he very smartly made a different kind of film. He still kept the alien in it, but he lent more into the action movie genre. He made more of a war movie and he delivered a very, very successful entry into the franchise that grew the franchise rather than just repeating it to lesser effect. And that was a lesson that I learned because you see many franchises kind of like calcify and die by just doing the same thing over and over again. Um, so it was very intentional with Resident Evil that every movie we did at its heart was a slightly different film. You know, the first one was very much a chamber piece horror movie. Uh, the second one was more of an expansive action movie with a ticking clock. The third one was a road movie, a post-apocalyptic road movie. The fourth one was a siege movie. The fifth one was really a, a chase movie because it took place in a very compacted, almost like real time and then the sixth one kind of circled around and kind of closed the loop by coming back to being more like the first film. Every movie while being Resident Evil was a slightly different kind of film and delivered a different kind of aesthetic as well. It's very interesting. The look of the movies are so different, even though, you know, the last three movies have substantially different looks, but they're all, they all have exactly the same director of photography, but we were going for a completely different look. So Resident Evil Retribution has such a clean, symmetrical look. You'd never think that had the same director of photography as the final chapter, but it did. And again, you know, with Monster Hunter, you know, a lot of people have said, my God, the movie looks great. Who's the new director of photography? And I'm like, it's Glenn McPherson, the same guy who's done my last five movies. <laughs> you know, we decided to go for a completely different look. The Boo Crew will be right back. Remember those idyllic scenes out of your childhood? Crisp winter nights, sleigh bells, crackling yule logs. Remember those. Remember them well. After Black Christmas, they'll never be the same again. Black Christmas.
going on, let's talk about Monster Hunter. So in this tendency to push the envelope, you have kind of this rock and roll spirit that is a thread that continues not only in your creative zest on screen, but also in what we are hearing. The soundtracks to your film are very fun and expansive and aggressive. And you were the first person who gave a guy like Marilyn Manson a shot at scoring a feature film with Resident Evil, which really changed the game. And that thread has continued through all your work leading up to Monster Hunter. Here we have Paul Hasslinger, who's in Tangerine Dream. You've scored with him before. You've worked with him before. He's gone on to an impressive career scoring films. But his work is not typical. What are your thoughts on the importance of taking us on a ride sonically as well as visually? I think the sound of a movie, uh, particularly the music, has always been crucial to me. From the very first film I made, Shopping, we had a soundtrack deal on that movie before we even had the movie financed. Wow. And we had a deal with London Records, and uh, we were using like, you know, real cutting edge DJs at the time to compose for us, some amazing bands as well. And then, you know, uh, the Utah Saints we worked with, Orbital we worked with, Orbital I worked with on Shopping. Um, and then on Mortal Kombat, and then also on Event Horizon, they did three movies for me. And then working with Manson was just fantastic. I mean, he's such a genius. It was interesting working, though, because, I mean, basically he didn't, he was living the vampire lifestyle at the time, so he didn't get up until the sun went down. And I'd been working all day, and then I'd, I'd go to his home studio to start working on the music. And uh, so, and we wouldn't start kind of doing anything till like 11, midnight. So I... I was drinking a lot of coffee. <laughs> I can't speak to what Manson might have been doing, but I consumed a lot of caffeine. Was that one of the haunted studios that he worked in? It was at his house, actually. Oh. This amazing gothic, it was like a gothic castle he lived in, in the Hollywood Hills. And you'd go through his house, which was just, it was exactly what you'd want from Marilyn yeah. Manson. Yeah. You know, you'd, exactly where you'd picture he would live. I think he turned his pool house into like a home studio. So, yeah, I mean, I've always been fascinated with working with, with great artists who can bring something new and fresh to the table in terms of the sound. With Monster Hunter, you know, I, lo I love working with Haslinger. I've done several movies with him. But for me, you know, the inspiration was, you know, when you do a movie, you put a temp soundtrack on it where you use music from other movies. So we, we put on the traditional action-y, big monster-y music that you might anticipate. And it just felt a little, felt like I'd heard it before. And uh, I called up Paul and I said, look, I, I want to go a different direction with this. I want you to do me a Tangerine Dream soundtrack. And he said, really? And I said, yeah, I think, I think this would be really cool to, it'll be the last thing people expect is to juxtapose this kind of big movie imagery with one of your kind of very kind of retro 80s Tangerine dream style soundtracks. And that's what we did. You know, we were very influenced by the work he'd done with them and the other scores they'd done as well. I'm like a huge fan of Thief and of uh, The Keep and uh, movies like that. And um, he did this electronic score. There's no orchestra in there. It's all electronic. And I think it's just kick ass. And, uh, you know, when we tested the movie, it was one of the things people loved because we, we tested with his music on it because I thought maybe I'm making a terrible mistake here because it's not what you would expect. So he actually put together the score and we tested the movie with an audience and they came back and just loving, loving the way the music went with the images. You know, you're being immersed in a fresh new world and I wanted a kind of fresh new sound for it. And 
not that the, the inspiration of the, the sound is obviously not fresh because it's coming from the 80s, but I think in a, in a big movie, it's not what you would expect right now. And I think that's its strength. And Mila is just incredible in this role as, as Captain Artemis. And it's always such an exciting feeling to watch her as a performer because she just evaporates into whatever she does, whether it's Fifth Element to Perfect Getaway to her music career. She's got this fearlessness and she just throws herself into everything. It's very cathartic to watch because she tends to embody all of our strengths and weaknesses and emotions in everything she does. And it's really rare. What about her inspires you? I think it's her commitment to the movies that she makes. I mean, you're, you're right. She, she immerses herself so much, she almost disappears. I think any director is, is super lucky to work with Mila because she just gives her all to a role. And in this one, you know, she's playing a soldier. And she said, well, if I'm going to play a soldier, I want to be in the shape of a soldier. So she was in the best shape of her life when she made this movie. She started training for it nine months before we even started filming the movie. And then uh, she, she worked with a consultant, this real female army ranger called Natalie Malou, who's one of the few um, female rangers in the U.S. Army. They became very good friends. They bonded. And uh, Natalie had uh, Mila getting up at three o'clock in the morning, going and working out, doing all this kind of boot camp stuff before she even went into hair and makeup before going to shoot the movie. So um, she was incredibly focused. And, uh, you know, for me, that just pays dividends as a director because you get that kind of commitment from an actor and uh, it just makes your job easy. And we love how the entire plot reveals itself to the viewer as if we are there with her. We know as much or as little as she discovers along the way. How did that idea become something that was compelling to you? Well, it's, you know, the, the movie is adapted from a video game, but equally, you know, I, I want to please the fans of the game because I'm a fan of the game. And that was very, very important to me. That's why I worked so closely with the creators of the game to make sure I got all of the details right in terms of the creatures, the landscapes, the costumes, the weapons. Everything is 100% as it is from the game. But when you play the game, you know, you, you play a new character, you create a character and you go into this world. And I thought that that should be Mila's character. She should be new to the world because that gives us two advantages. One, you can see the world fresh through her eyes. So you can have a sense of wonder because you're seeing the world for the first time, uh, which is, was my experience when I played the video game for the first time was this sense of wonder. But also it means if you don't know anything about Monster Hunter, if you've never played the video game, if you don't even play video games, you don't have to worry you can come see this movie and really enjoy it because the central character is just like you, doesn't know anything about the video game or the world and is going in there. And, and Mila essentially becomes your avatar, whether you're a gamer or a non-gamer. She's your avatar through which you experience the, the world of Monster Hunter. Let's talk about what went into building this world of Monster Hunter, these amazing sweeping desert sets and cliffs. Where is this and how much of it was augmented by CG? Well, it's obviously in the Monster Hunter world. It's, uh, <laughs> it's another world. I, I think if you, if you make a movie like this, you have two options to create the world. One is you can shoot it all on a studio backlot against a green screen and you can create the world inside of a computer. I didn't want to go that route because I felt the creatures already were going to have to be CG. You know, if someone gave me the option to breed giant creatures and, <laughs> and fight for real, I would, of course, that would be my first choice. 
but no one at Sony seemed, you know, want to want to do that. I don't know why. So they were going to have to be CG. And I thought if the creatures are going to be CG, absolutely everything else in the movie must be real. And that way we'll give the movie a feeling of reality. And, and it won't look like an animated movie where both the foreground and the background are all CG and the actors just standing in front of a green screen. So we shot in front of a green screen for exactly one day out of our entire shoot. And the rest of the shoot was all done on location. And uh, these locations are, they were the most fabulous landscapes I could find that matched the landscapes in the video game. And uh, I discovered that the most fabulous landscapes are usually in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And uh, a lot of them have never been put on screen before. And there's a reason for that because they were literally hundreds of miles from the nearest town in the middle of very, very inhospitable uh, weather patterns. So the entire cast and crew would be living in tent villages that we had to put together. During the day, it would be insanely hot. At night, uh, temperatures would drop below zero. There'd be big storms come up, blow all the tents away. You realize why no one lived in these places. <laughs> but, but God, did they look fantastic. You know, that, that's what we got. We got this insanely, insanely good look for the movie that, that feels like another world. Uh, because these are landscapes that I think people have just never seen before. And most of them were in the interior of Africa, either in South Africa or in Namibia. There's one practical effect I wanted to ask about, and that was uh, uh, Mila in the cocoon. How was that done? We stuck Mila in a cocoon. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, well, it was easy for me. <laughs> just like, can, you, can you get in the cocoon? You know, Mila always, always knew that was going to be a tough, uh, a tough scene. And she turned up ready for all the slime and the horribleness of hanging upside down in the cocoon. And, uh, and then she saw that I'd constructed this huge lake of slime underneath her. <laughs> you know, rather, rather angry. She's like, of course, you know, I can't just drop out of the slimy cocoon. I have to draw, drop into a lake of slime and then like be soaking wet and covered in slime for the rest of the week. But she did it because she's a trooper. This movie had the most amazing killer props, all these like steampunky gadgets. Are you a collector yourself or did you keep anything from this movie or any of your previous movies? I used to be an avid collector of things from my films. And uh, then I, I, well, I was for like the first 10 years and then my career continued and I, eventually I just had too much stuff. So <laughs> I, I've learned how to say goodbye and, uh, and to not want to keep the things to start with. Otherwise, you know, I would just, I'd just be drowning in stuff because there's so many cool-looking things in, in the films that we've made. I will say every time, you know, I go and, and look in a cupboard in our house, like the top high, I'm looking for something, there'll be an endless array of weapons that fall out. Because <laughs> Mila loves keeping all the swords and the pistols and the guns yeah. and the... So, well, we have an endless amount of, of weaponry that falls out of our cupboards in our house that even I'm unaware of. So, yeah, but, but I don't think we... Yeah, so she has, she has her two dual blades that she oh, uses. that's awesome. That's amazing. She plays the video game as well, and they were her favorite weapons from the video game, so we gave her those weapons in the movie. Are there plans to continue the franchise, and can you map out a bit of where we may be heading with this? The world of Monster Hunter, it's like been 15 years of the video game. So it's a very multiple games. It's a very broad universe, which we've only managed to kind of scratch the surface of, hopefully in a very entertaining way. Of course, I would love to go back in and kind of root around in there a bit more. But for me, you know, the focus has all been on delivering the first movie and making sure that movie really delivers as just one film. I think a, 
a lot of potential franchises get tripped up because they think too much about, oh, well, in the second and the third film, we're going to do this and this. And they forget that if you don't deliver a really satisfying first movie, there is no second and third film. So my, yes, I'd love to, to kind of explore a little bit more, but my focus has been entirely on, on delivering a, a really epic, exciting movie for the first film. Paul, awesome. thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it so much, man. It's been a delight. It's been my pleasure. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 189. Special thanks to our guest, Paul W.S. Anderson. At time of release, see Monster Hunter in theaters December 18th. Production tracks for this episode provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy or disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.